We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Mr. Chief Justice, it pleases the court. The purpose of intellectual property is not to reward or recognize creators. And uh, creators think that's what it's about and that it's there to protect them and, and um, give them that recognition. But in fact, it's to promote culture for the, the state's sake. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Welcome to In Studio. This week we're going to talk about music and copyright, licensing and royalties in Haiti and here in the U.S. Joining me in the studio are Life of the Law team members Asagi Obasagi and Tony Gannon. And from the studios of UC Davis, Madhavi Sunder, professor of law at the University of California, Davis. Madhavi researches the legal regulation of culture in numerous fields, from intellectual property to the freedom of religion to the First Amendment. Welcome, everyone. Hi, Nancy. Thanks hey, Nancy. for having us, Nancy. Thank you, Madhavi. And to our listeners, if you haven't heard our most recent feature episode by Ian Koss, The Gift and Curse of Music, you can find a link to the audio of the story at lifeofthelaw.org, on iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app. So, first of all, I just have to say it was great producing Ian's piece because now everyone in my office likes Haitian music. Um, and I love Haitian music. I mean, if you're having a down day and it's maybe Friday afternoon and you're looking for something to lift you, put on Serge Tournier's music, otherwise known as Power Surge, who we profile in The Gift and Curse of Music. I don't know. How did I not know about Haitian music? But now I'm in. So I want. we're happy to share this with our listeners. And today we have a chance to really sort out. What did we learn from this piece and what do we still not know? I also loved working with Ian. I love Ian's music. Um, he is a composer. That's right. He's the composer of this episode. So The Gift and Curse of Music is the story of Serge Tournier, his life as a Haitian music producer, specifically sort of like a beat producer. Uh, when we meet him, he's both enamored by the musical culture of Haiti, but he's also like on his way out because he can't make it. He's sort of at the top of his game. Um, we learned that he's recorded with Wycliffe Jean. Um, he's nationally recognized, internationally recognized, but he can't. he's making literally 10% of his income off of music. So that's the conflict. Um, and then we go into um, American copyright law and then specifically getting into um, more recent developments in Haitian intellectual laws, namely the TRIPS Agreement and WTO. Um, so it's both a sort of a very informative um, historical piece as well as a, um, a personal piece around Serge Tournier, who, by the way, at the very end, well, I don't want to spoil it, but we see what is possible with respect to um, an international Haitian uh uh, music producer such as Serge Tournier. So, you know, one thing that really jumped out at me is, I, I mean, I just had no idea that you can actually create something like a song and and it's not protected. You know, I mean, in Cuba and Haiti. Madhavi, how did that happen? I mean, what? So, so I mean, I think that what Power Surge didn't understand, frankly, is that his music is protected under new copyright law, uh, you know, um, 
circa 2005. So we're talking very recent new laws that mandate protection of music and literature and sculpture. Um, all expressive work must be protected under international law, and every country that was a member of the World Trade Organization was required to um, establish uh, legislation providing for that. So actually, under even Haitian law, um, that incredible music that we heard in that program is protected. But what they are running up against is the reality of the lack of enforcement right. um, uh, in Haiti. So uh, it's just a piece of paper, unfortunately, um, but they aren't actually getting the royalties, the livelihood that they are hoping for and expecting from that legal right. But, 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 but enforcement is everything. Isn't it? Enforcement is everything. Um, You know, but at the same time, we have to recognize that, especially in developing countries, uh, the enforcement authorities are going to make choices and they have to prioritize. And for them, protecting copyright of musicians or intellectual property rights doesn't rise to the level of, uh, you know, insurgency on the streets and and dealing with poverty and other issues that um, are their day to day, um, you know, number one priority. So so that's a big uh, that's probably one of the biggest challenges in terms of uh, really seeing intellectual property rights realized in the developing world. So so if you have a piece of paper that says, no, you are protected, and you try to have someone enforce that piece, that, that, that work from somebody coming in and just saying, hey, that's a great song. I think I'll just, you know, from a Justin Bieber coming in and saying, hmm, like it. I'm going to just go in the studio tomorrow, redo it, put my name on it. I don't have to <laughs> acknowledge that Serge Tournier wrote it and produced it, and I can make a bunch of money, and nobody has to know, Right. So, I mean, even if uh, Serge Tournier is going to try to enforce it, that enforcement effort is going to cost a lot of money. It's going to take a lot of time. And, of course, he doesn't have that money. So there is this vicious cycle. And um, I think that it really goes back to the fact that, hey, these copyrights, these intellectual property rights are brand new in developing countries all over the world. And what hasn't happened and that needs to happen is the creation of a um, intellectual property culture and infrastructure that educates the government, educates uh, civil society about uh, how these rights are beneficial to the local economy, how they can promote development, as well as uh, the importance of recognition of these authors uh, for the creations that they've given us that enrich our lives. So, so there needs to be cultural education as well as legal education, and then the enforcement authority over time will come to say to see the broader, deeper role that these rights play in the um, local political economy. But that hasn't happened. And instead, kind of a, a one size fits all copyright structure has been just kind of slapped on all these different countries, largely for the benefit of Western countries and and the United States, um, which has a huge behemoth uh, copyright industry that it wants to basically the reason that 
Haiti got new copyright laws in 2005 was largely so that we could, so that Hollywood could ensure uh, rights to their royalties, and they have the ability to enforce their rights. They've got the money, they've got the power to enforce their rights, but it didn't really do much for the local artists, as we saw, and that's a shame. I think that's exactly what needs to change, uh, but but it hasn't happened yet, as we heard from uh, Surge. So we have this one-size-fits-all sort of intellectual property law that's been slapped on to countries like Haiti, but do we have any countries, and I'm thinking specifically maybe in in sort of neighboring countries uh, where there are efforts being made to protect um, artists in ways that are also, um, I don't know, Cult, a, a good cultural fit, right? Because we, we I mean, we, mm-hmm. and I don't know how we can speak to that, um, but we, I'm, I'm curious if there are any, sort of any other examples where they're doing things that are different. Sure. So, um, I mean, if you look more broadly, you know, not just at copyright, but also at patents and trademarks, um, I think a key is to find local producers of knowledge uh, and, and, and enable their partnerships with some uh, bigger, more powerful Western companies. So um, one example is uh, Ethiopia, and it, it, Ethiopia has long produced uh, some of the finest coffee in the world. It's called black gold, uh, but they weren't able to market and really get the recognition for their high quality coffees, they eventually partnered with Starbucks on a trademarking licensing deal where um, they relied on Starbucks to basically, Ethiopia said, we own the trademarks to these high quality coffees, but we are only going to license them to Starbucks if Starbucks invests in building the brand, building a reputation, uh, and uh, helping us really see the royalties back at home. And I think that that's probably a really important avenue for musicians as well. So the partnerships with uh, between Serge and Wyclef Jean and and seeking uh, fair partnerships and collaborations across cultures and across um, South and North may be important to kind of getting those revenues, the, the recognition going, but also the revenue streams going and building that, um, I guess, uh, building a financial base locally. But I, I think it's going to be difficult if they're just relying on trying to make the money from other poor listeners in Haiti because the listeners themselves may not be able to afford paying high prices for CDs and um, and, and high prices uh, to access this music. And I think it's thinking about how can they access on fair terms global markets that are um, more... Um, uh, monetarily, you know, kind of fruitful markets for them. But the problem was that Sony went into Haiti. In the story, we find out that Sony went into Haiti and they started moving towards copyright agreement with Sony. And mm-hmm. Sony pulled out because they said, you know what, you can't, you don't have the mechanism in Haiti to actually enforce a copyright if we do go forward with this. So they pulled out. They, So that alliance... If there's, you know, maybe Ethiopia has a better copyright for coffee than Haiti has for music, uh, because that's, from my understanding, that's why Sony didn't go forward, because Sarah's attorney said they just, there's no enforcement, and they would right, not right. agree to that. So what do you do? Um, and, you know, the other, what you said about maybe the people in Haiti are not able to afford to pay for music that has copyright protection. But then when you think about the United States right now or other countries, I mean, the podcast market has 
you know, just grown exponentially. And everybody who does podcasts, and I can speak for this one, is looking for music to make it unique. You know, looking mm-hmm. for that 10-second or 30-second bite of some unique composer's, you know, uh, composition that is on SoundCloud. And, you know, oh, you know, we'll just take that. It's only 30 seconds. And we couldn't afford if we had to pay him. You know, so I think that there's a, there's almost like a renewed interest, not just in Haiti or Cuba, but in, um, you know, places like the United States for arguing that, oh, if we had to pay copyright costs, we couldn't really afford it. So we'll just use it and and we'll just thank them, you know. So I'm mm-hmm. wondering if that's just a bad argument. It's the reality. I mean, and especially, you know, you're talking about the developing world, some of the poorest countries on Earth, and um, and in the past, countries had been able to kind of shape their intellectual property laws to reflect that economic uh, reality of their own of their own state. So, um, India, for example, the Indian Supreme Court in May just uh, decided a, a really important revolutionary copyright case where they said that hey, we recognize that the students in India can't afford these high prices for copyrighted textbooks. The you know, textbook of forty U.S. dollars a book is completely out of reach, but we have a huge population that needs to be educated. And um, the Indian Supreme Court said the right to education trumps the copyright of uh, these textbook owners and um, allowed for the creation of photocopying of articles to um, uh, help students have access to that knowledge. So um, this is something that uh, countries have always done, and the United States does it too. We have something called fair use, and um, we allow for, um, uh, 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 we, we, we treat tiny businesses and restaurants differently than we do larger businesses. We treat nonprofits differently. So we recognize that all uh, potential buyers of um of uh, copyrighted knowledge are not created equally. Right. So I don't think it's a bad argument. It's an incredibly important one that we need to not lose sight of. Uh, who are, Who's our market? But at the same time, if Sony's your market, they can afford to pay and they should learn to play fairly. Oh, so you're saying Sony should, even if Haiti doesn't have strong enforcement laws, Haiti should step up. They have the, they have the money to go in and say, we're going to help you build your enforcement oversight. Absolutely. And that'll make it fair for the musicians that we want to work with rather than just cutting and running. Listen, I mean, Sony and, uh, you know, all of the big players in Hollywood, they are looking to the developing world for their creativity, their music, their culture. Uh, there was a famous case involving a tattoo that was taken um, uh, from an indigenous tribe that was uh, that found its way into the... Um, uh, uh, hangover movies, and there was a copyright claim over that. So, so Hollywood's looking for new and exciting forms of culture all over the world, but then they need to make that investment mm-hmm. in those countries, in their intellectual property infrastructure, uh, and they need to do it uh, with good faith and on fair terms. So that was the whole argument for why these developing countries should even enact strong intellectual property rights laws. The argument was that, hey, unless you do that, these Western companies aren't going to come and invest in your country. Well, they did enact the strong copyright laws, but now we need to see these uh, potential partners really um, seek to to partner and collaborate in good faith because there's great culture to be had and shared uh, around the globe. 
But I, I think that's a really important point. But I think the other side of that is that once we incentivize corporations to do this type of work, it we have to be aware of the fact that they're not necessarily interested in protecting the rights rights of artists. They're mostly interested in appropriating the culture of other places for their own financial benefit. And while those two things don't have to be mutually, mutually exclusive, we've seen how corporations have done this type of behavior, such as with pharmaceuticals, for example. We've seen this type of colonial behavior um, time and time again. And so it just raises the broader question of, and this is just a very kind of general question, is what's the purpose of intellectual property? Um, is it to protect the interests of artists so that they can somehow recoup some type of financial benefit for the work that they have put out into the world? Or is there to protect the interests of the owners of capital, um, the, the Sonys of the world, the, the big pharmaceutical companies of the world, where intellectual property has been deployed in a manner to not necessarily benefit the actual creators, but to benefit those who have the means to enforce their, their intellectual property. And I think uh, along the same lines, I think it's important. You know, one of the I thought it was a beautiful story that was told. Um, by Ian, but I did have some quibbles with it um, to the extent that the kind of general framing of the story was that this was a uniquely uh, Haitian experience or experience unique to the developing world. And we all know that that's simply not true. We, we, we can sit here and list off the number of Western artists, particularly in the United States, who have created you know, uh, blockbuster uh, music, music that has sold millions and millions of copies uh, of albums. And then we all of a sudden see on the news that these artists are bankrupt and that they didn't necessarily have any rights to their music that they produce. And all those rights were tied up in the uh, in the producers and companies they were working with. So this is all to come back to say that the conversation on intellectual property and protecting the interests of artists is a complicated conversation and that the the kind of insertion of intellectual property rights into a developing country um, doesn't necessarily mean that artists will turn around and, and profit. And, you know, Ian does mention this towards the, towards the end of the piece. And he does acknowledge it. But I think it, uh, it's useful to have a, a conversation about how the dynamic that's being explored in the podcast is not unique to that particular uh, place. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. We're coming back to what we're doing right here, which is a podcast. There's currently no easy way for uh, podcasts to, say, get uh, a clearance of rights uh, on a broad swath of music that a radio station is able to do, say, through ASCAP. Right? Like radio stations can, can do that. Uh, apparently restaurants and bars can do that, although I don't know. Um, the intricacies of that, I don't really think it applies to small businesses. Um, but you can do it, right, in certain contexts where you have a cabaret license and you have people dancing and you, and you want to stream music for entertainment to make money, um, then you, you can pay ASCAP, right, as a bar or restaurant. Um, but for podcasts, that just doesn't exist right now. Um, and what we are relying on in the podcast industry are the the work of independent musicians. And I think, ironically, a lot of musicians, especially may, maybe ones that are uh, doing music for podcasts can relate, can identify directly uh, to, to Serge Tournier's struggles here in the United States. So I also agree there's a little bit of a false dichotomy there in that this is happening in the United States um, as well. So is, is the question ultimately, wherever you are, if you're just an individual musician or composer, that you're up against, always going to be up against corporate 
you know, capital interests that are going to say, hey, we, we've got the bigger lawyer, you know, we've got, we've got the more power to, you know, I don't know, what, ha- what happens in that moment when a musician goes up against corporate interests? Yeah. They want your work, but they don't want to, like, what? They don't want to give it all to you? They want to take the bigger chunk? And how do you so- protect yourself? Yeah, so just going back to the Starbucks story, that wasn't actually a nice, uh, you know, obvious partnership that just formed out of the goodness of Starbucks's heart. Actually, Starbucks was shamed into partnering and working positively with the Ethiopian coffee growers. Um, there was actually a huge global campaign led by Oxfam that said that these Ethiopian coffee growers are actually starving. There's famine here because of companies like Starbucks not treating them fairly. So I think that. Um, global expectations of consumers uh, has a powerful role to play in terms of kind of, um, I I agree with the Sagi, the the corporations are not going in there uh, looking to see how they can help the poor in the developing world. But at the same time, they are going there prospecting for knowledge and culture. Um, And and if there is an increasing global awareness around the unfairness of of taking um, what's not theirs and not fairly recognizing the uh, creators around the world and and paying them their fair share, uh, that that that's not something that audiences around the world or consumers around the world are going to stand for. So I think that there is an amount of uh, public pressure and awareness uh, that needs to come into this. But I did just want to go back to one thing that Asagi said, because Asagi, you said the the whole point here is what's the purpose of intellectual property? Um, and, and, you know, my quibble with Ian's uh, feature is that the purpose of intellectual property is not to reward or recognize creators. And uh, creators think that's what it's about and that it's there to protect them and, and um, give them that recognition. But in fact, it's to promote culture for the um, the state's sake. Okay, so we want to promote knowledge and promote innovation. We give these rights as incentives for the creation, but not as rewards to the creators themselves. And, and that is, you know, um, sometimes why there tends to be this... Um, kind of disconnect and the rights end up going to corporations who ultimately own the copyrights and not the authors and creators themselves. And they often get the uh, short end uh, in this in this deal. So but but unfortunately, the current copyright system isn't about rewarding authors. I don't understand what's the difference between incentive and reward. I mean, if if you're a musician in, I don't know, Boston, or you're Mm -hmm. a musician in Haiti, and you're understand, I mean, isn't copyright law to protect the original person who created that piece of work and their rights to to own that and to be recognized for that and that anyone who wants to use it or or you know produce it they have to pay you a certain based on licensing fees um, don't they I mean isn't there kind of that it, I mean there is an incentive but the reward is also implied and there real well, the incentive comes in because it's a it's a limited property right. So, um, it, it, if you think about rewarding authors for their genius, well, then that might get us in the territory of a perpetual right that rights that lasts forever. But instead, this is a state created tool for say for 
uh, incentivizing the creation of enough creative work that we think we need uh, to have a robust uh, culture and democracy. So, um, but your rights expire after life of the author plus 50 years. Um, so, so one, it's a limited right. But the other side of that is that you, as an author, can sell your right to a producer. And that is usually what happens right away. And there's not... Uh, equal bargaining power in that exchange. So ultimately, as Asagi said, is the author, uh, him or herself, really protected um, uh, in this system? Usually not. And one way to think about this also is that, you know, we're sitting here in California, San Francisco, and I think, believe California is now the sixth or seventh largest largest economy in the world. And a lot of that is because, is because California is a place of creativity, right? And so there is a huge incentive for the state to uh, want people to be creative, to create products, to help the economy, which which boosts the state. And so this idea, and Madhavi, I really appreciate your comments in terms of clarifying the purpose of intellectual property to the extent that this is really about um, creating the conditions for the state to flourish, not necessarily the conditions for the individual to flourish for the creations they make. And I think that's a, it's a critical part of the conversation that has to be at the center of any uh, discussion about you know what we're doing and what we're doing with regards to intellectual property. You know, something you said, Madhavi, um, about you know, there has to be an awareness and the power of the community um, in Ethiopia. It, I guess, basically shamed Starbucks into, Starbucks into negotiating and coming up with a pro- uh, copyright protection agreement with the Ethiopian coffee, coffee growers, which sounds like it must have been incredible coffee. I kind of want some. <laughs> I know, me too. What was that called again? Yerga <laughs> uh, Chef. <laughs> Black Gold. Sadama. <laughs> yeah. So anyway. I'm, I'm thinking in order for that to occur, people have to be aware that there's something of value that they are receiving, that it came from this other place or this other environment or this other culture. And I think one of the problems that I kind of started thinking about as we um, were working on, on um, the gift and curse of music on Haitian copyright was that if you don't know that a song came from Haiti or a musician wrote it in Haiti and you hear it and you're like, hey, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm sorry, Justin Bieber, I'm going to use you again. And <laughs> Justin Bieber does this song and you're like, wow, Justin Bieber's really got it down this year. You know, he, he's got this great beat and wow. And and we never know that that came from Haiti. Well, then where's the groundswell of, hey, we've got to really, you know, work to support Haitian copyright protection because, wow, they really should get the recognition for the work they're doing. But if 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 that's getting kind of washed out, uh, how, what is that? Well, I think we have to understand that this very dynamic is the crux of Western capitalism, right? So the entire kind of That we growth, rip off? <laughs> well, the entire growth of Western capitalism has been the West going into the developing world, taking resources and use them as their own to the benefit of the West and to the detriment of the of that home country. I mean, that is that is modern Western industry. And so we have to I think it's important to put this conversation around intellectual property in that broader colonial historical context to understand how we have, in a sense, created legal rules to normalize a behavior that is ethically questionable um, and morally questionable and, and deeply problematic. And so as we think about reforming intellectual property, I think we have to think about it in, 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 the, in the broader historical context of moving away from these kind of colonial dynamics, these colonial relations, and rethink the, the, the very 
basis of our relationships with other partners across the world. And that may very well mean making sure that the creators of, of, of useful content actually retain some ownership of it to the point where they can financially benefit and create or, or sustain a livelihood. And, and at the same time, it might decrease the levels of ownership that the, that the owners of capital or, or the companies have. And that's, uh, you know, that that's not a popular thought <laughs> right now, but it is to say that we have to, in a sense, understand um, that the way we think about ownership and intellectual property is, is part of a pattern uh, that is uh, that we have to reexamine and make sure that we don't perpetuate into the future to the detriment of, of vulnerable populations. That's absolutely right, Asagi. And and I, I mean, I, I would just want to add that, uh, in fact, in intellectual property circles, there is much more of a um, kind of call for reform now to uh, equal to, to level the playing field and to call out these injustices, this claim that intellectual property law can't just be the law of the jungle where the richest and the uh, strongest can go and uh, reap uh, from the poor uh, countries around the world, and um, and in fact, there's uh, uh, increasing calls for equitable benefit sharing and uh, social pressure for equitable benefit sharing, but also some changes in, in international intellectual property rules that would require it. In the patent contest context, you mentioned um, uh, pharmaceutical drugs and how often uh, those big pharma companies go into the developing world and take uh, traditional remedies and um, and, and uh, don't give credit back and don't certainly don't share profits back. But now, uh, increasingly, there's pressure to put rules that would say if you don't disclose the origins of your medicine and if you're not sharing equitably with the local source community, then you're going to lose your patent. Um, that's a really harsh rule. So um, there's definitely, and, and, and that's in the patent context, um, actually the Starbucks case is trademarks, not copyright. Uh, but Increasingly, in the copyright case too, I think awareness—you uh, know—the more we bring awareness to incidents uh, where uh, big companies like Disney uh, and uh, and and uh, others are taking uh, wholesale taking, you know. Um, Joseph Shab- Shabalala of uh, the South African vocal group Ladysmith Black Mombazo. Uh, he's talked about how um, this is always done and music from these various cultures is taken wholesale, but then it's called traditional. And he jokes that when the word traditional is mm-hmm. used, it means all the money stays in New York. <laughs> and and uh, but but increasing recognition that this isn't traditional music. It's actually the cutting edge, brand new uh, music created by these individual artists like Surge recorded and um uh, and and uh, you know claimed as intellectual property. The more we see that happening and a rejection of this just being kind of folk music or traditional music, the more we we can see some pressure growing on um, calls for profit sharing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think this is um, this point is just so key because once you have this broader understanding, you realize we can't separate this issue that we're talking about in Haiti and intellectual intellectual property from the broader conversation about the African slave trade or the uh, the trade in certain minerals in Africa where you have tremendous human rights abuses occurring. So we have to, it's just, again, it's another way of putting this particular issue around around music in the developing world in the context of just these this colonial dynamic that's existed for hundreds, hundreds of years and seeing that this is an opportunity to, um, to reform those relationships by making sure that we create new rules that are more equitable for the, uh, the creators of content. 
You know, I think the what we, when you speak of you know colonialism, past colonialism, where you know bodies and minerals they were hard things. They were like you could feel them. They were visual. But when you when you hear a song. It's so easy to say, oh, no, I didn't really rip that song off, you know, or, yeah, I just took a little bit of it. Or, you know, I mean, I just think that when we when we get into cultural creation, like ideas and books and, and poems and, and, and music, especially music, because you hear it and, and you can just so easily move into taking it without, like, oh, I didn't really take the whole thing, you know. Um, and I, I think how do we... And, and I think what's lost is the very, you know, that experience of sitting in my office and listening to Serge Tournier's music and just like, I love this music. You know, why didn't I know? Um, why didn't I? Now I just, I have, I don't know. I mean, I, I just feel so. <laughs> but I think that's part of the colonial attitude that we have towards certain people. Mm. So, for example, if I were to take the recipe for Coca-Cola and use part of it to create my own drink, people would not say, like, oh, he just took a little bit of that recipe. He only replicated part of it uh, for his own benefit. They would say, no, Coca-Cola is an established part of our society, and they're, they're a big corporation, and what they have is tangible and real, and what you have done has affected their profits. And so we wouldn't have that same attitude towards Coca-Cola or Procter & Gamble or, or any other big country. We only have this attitude towards poor people, people who are vulnerable, uh, people uh, we only see uh, – we see the music of poor people as culture that can be appropriated, not as a tangible, real, meaningful uh, product that has real financial value. And so I think part of the work that has to be done is kind of making sure that we uh, afford the same dignity and respect to the content created by poor people as we do to the big corporations. So, Madhavi, how do we know? Like, if I'm sitting listening to a song, <laughs> we'll just stay with Justin Bieber. And it's by Justin Bieber, and I'm like, oh, wait a minute, I... I think I heard that from Serge Tournier, you know, like I, what if, wh how do we know, how do we, how do we as individuals in this culture work to, so, you know, participate in this in a, you know, e ethical way? So Serge Tournier's work isn't just kind of, you know, the result of some oral tradition or something. He's in a modern studio in Haiti recording and um, and it's documented what his music is. And that's what copyright um, cases are all about, figuring out well how much is taken and, and, and how much was in the original. But these things can be fairly easily documented uh, now and then globally publicized uh, with the Internet, which is um, incredible. And and that's what has to happen more uh, and 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 uh, I mean look uh, right now Marvin Gaye's family is suing Pharrell Williams and Robin Thicke over um, uh, their hit Blurred Lines and um, and it's uh, shameful to be accused of uh, copyright infringement nobody wants to be uh, Pharrell doesn't want to be so so um, but these are all things that can be easily proven it's it's uh, recorded music and um, and you just show that it, it was mine first and you took a whole lot of it yeah, and I think uh, another part of the conversation uh, is that the tendency to uh, identify uh, the work uh, from the developing world as as cultural, as traditional, is at the very least an implicit attempt to say that this work is a part of nature. It's just out there, and therefore mm -hmm. is simply discovered by the West mm -hmm. and then appropriated. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's a, so 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 this is part of this again this colonial discourse that uh, allows this taking of. Uh, of, of intellectual property without giving due credit or compensation. And so this is part of the issue that has to be 
uh, are part of the struggle and making sure that we uh, recognize the work for what it is. It's really a cultural evolution. Well, it's, it's kind of what, as Maude yeah. was saying, you know, Serge is actually, you know, a uh, he's in a studio. He's he's developing music that's just as complex and, and entertaining as any type of music. But to refer to it as you know traditional Haitian music or, or Haitian music that is indicative of a particular culture uh, is to ascribe a certain uh, uh, lack of complexity to it, which it makes it seem as if it's some type of you know just kind of something that's floating around in nature in in, in Haiti, and that is there for the taking from anyone who's willing to come in and. Uh, put forth some type of more uh, complicated Western spin on things that will allow it to obtain some type of Western or uh, apply some type of Western intellectual pipes to it. So that, you know, this is not what the piece is talking about at all. Uh, but it is to say that we, when we put a narrative of uh, 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 that emphasizes cultural tradition, et cetera, et cetera, it, uh, it tends to allow the intellectual property rights of those in the developing world to be dismissed. Yeah, it erases the, this uh, very human contribution of an individual artist and uh, it makes them just kind of the object of someone else's property rather than holders and creators of, of property in their own right. And, um, you know, I, I've written about how what we're seeing in the developing world is this kind of um, convergence of identity politics and intellectual property. So, uh, uh, you know, groups of people who have been kind of erased and um, discriminated against are saying, look, uh, you need to recognize me as uh, an individual and recognize my difference and recognize my artistic contributions and um, give me fair remuneration for that. But that recognition piece, which, you know, I initially said it's not actually part of the kind of Western narrative of intellectual property. It's not about recognizing creators, but maybe it should be <laughs> a little bit more because um, it's certainly an important uh, uh, element of how culture, you know, recognizing kind of the diverse contributors of culture. And um, and that's what makes it more meaningful. Nancy, when you talk about wanting to play um, uh, Serge's music and, and other really amazing new innovative music coming out of Haiti today, it's that what makes it powerful and meaningful is not just that the music is good and uh, but you know knowing where it comes from knowing its current context and having us be a part of that global conversation and sharing that I mean that's that's the kind of culture we want to promote cultural exchange uh, and and cultural sharing uh, that kind of brings us all closer and recognition and recognition I, I do think it's an incredibly important part of it that's all the time we have for In Studio today at Life of Law. And listeners, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you think about music and copyright. Or if you have a question about the law or a news story you want us to sort out, send an email to connect at lifeofthelaw.org. Be sure to include your contact information so we can follow up. Thanks to our in-studio team, Asagi Obasaki, professor at UC Berkeley School of Public Health and a member of our advisory board, Tony Gannon, filmmaker and our senior producer, and Madhavi Sunder, professor of law and with the Center for Science and Innovation Studies at UC Davis. You can find links to Professor Sunder's work on our website, lifeofthelaw.org. Tony Gannon will senior produce, and Kirsten Jesuits-Heidel and Rachel Kane will post-produce this episode. Our music was composed by Ian Koss, and I hope Justin Bieber doesn't take any offense to my mention of his name numerous times. Katie McMurrin is our engineer here at KQED. Tim Kerbavis engineered from UC Davis. We also want to take a minute to thank listeners who have made donations to support our work here at Life of the Law. Thanks to Bill Epling, Callie Catcock, Dunstan Orchard, 
Zoe Mullery, James Kerr, Margaret Wenmachers, Donald Franks, Beth Arnazzi, and John O'Grady. I hope you'll join them in making a donation at lifeofthelaw.org. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply Network of Podcasts from Slate. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange, next on Life of the Law. And this is how dark my world was. When I did get arrested on April 5th, 2001, for numerous counts of drug possession and drug distribution, I was enrolled in Cypress College. I was taking counseling the family of the addicted person and drugs and alcohol in our society because I was gonna be a drug counselor, because I was gonna save everybody else from the darkness that I had to endure. That's next on Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening.